around in them. Like I said earlier, uh, my name's Jim. Uh, I'm uh, the vicar here. Uh, and uh, about nine years ago with my wife, Vicky, uh, and Beth, who's around somewhere, uh, and a few of the team, we, we came uh, and planted here uh, into this church in Lincoln. We did need to find out where Lincoln was first, but when we found out where that was, we came to Lincoln. We started over in that church over there about nine years ago, a team of about 12 of us, um, with the invitation really to come and to build uh, and try and establish a growing family, a family uh, that was for everyone and a family that would grow and begin to have a, a ripple out effect uh, and work alongside the churches uh, already here. And uh, today, uh, as we are, you're obviously here this evening, sat here, well done. Uh, you're part of that family, part of that journey. But actually, across the day today, uh, that family has grown. We've had over, probably by the end of the day, about 300 people in that immediate family, either here in one of the three congregations here or uh, in one of the congregations down the road uh, at St. Faith's, who are part of our family as well. And even beyond that, up in Grimsby today, uh, there's been two congregations meeting in two churches because we sent a little team from here to go and do the same thing up in Grimsby. Uh, and so we're kind of like a wider family. And so this family has been growing, uh, and that's really just it's nothing to do with our story. That's the story of what God has been doing right from this passage in Genesis, right from the start. And I'll say a bit more about this this evening. It's been God's intention, God's design to build and to grow a family for everyone. And so we're sat here tonight as part of that context. But before I get going a little bit further, um, Kath, uh, for, for this vision series that we're embarking on called Family for Everyone, has just put together this little video just to help set the scene a bit. Thank you. 
Wonderful. So as we start this three-week vision series, looking at uh, a particular focus, I think, that we have in store for the next year ahead, we've given it this title, Family for Everyone. And we've given it that title because it's both what I see God has uh, started to do among us over the last nine years, but also what I believe God is asking us to have in terms of our key mindset, the things that God is asking us to think about and lean into in the year ahead. Namely, what, what does it mean? How can we discover more deeply and how can we more red, readily uh, be family? What does it mean to be family for everyone? And the reason I ask that is because it's one of the themes, actually, that we can trace all the way through the Bible. This idea of a family for everyone, that God is moving, God is at work to draw all people into his family. So if we start at the end of the Bible, I know I've opened you to, uh, to ask you to open the beginning, but if you were to turn to the end of the Bible and go to Revelation 7 verse 9, John, the writer of Revelation, that's 7 verse 9, I can hear some pages turning, which is brilliant. The anticipation is killing you, I know. But Revelation 7 9 says this. I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes, all races and languages. And they were standing, dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb. It's how the story ends. It's what God, through Jesus and in the church, is doing. It's where we're headed. All nations, all tribes, unified, one big family praising Jesus together. And so if that's the end, what it means is that through Scripture, what part of the problem that God is at work to try and heal and correct through the story of the Bible is this disunity of humanity. People using their differences and their distinctiveness to tear one another apart rather than being a family for everyone. And it follows, therefore, that the church is to be a part of both that process and also a taste, a demonstration of what is to come, a sign of the kingdom. That that should radically change our understanding of what we think church is all about. If I were to say the word church to you, I wonder what immediately your reaction would be. Uh, it's probably a whole host of things, some good, some bad. I suspect if we went out there into the street and asked people who didn't go to church, what's the first thing you think of when you say church? They'd come up with words like hypocritical, boring, untrue, irrelevant. I don't know how many people necessarily would say family or, or love or care. But that is what our mindset about what church is should be framed around, this idea of family. And so the Bible reading I've chosen for today, and we're going to dig around the first couple of chapters of Genesis, is because if we're thinking about what our vision is as a church, if we're thinking what it means to be church or part of church, if we're thinking what it means to be family for everyone, then we have to start with God's heart, God's design, God's plan for us and for his people. And I want us to see that this idea of being a family for everyone, isn't just some nice page-turning idea or, or some take-it-or-leave-it option, but this idea of family 
for everyone is completely central, completely wired in, and fundamental to how we understand the story of the Bible, how we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Genesis 1 and 2, and what we have going on in Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation story, but told in two slightly different ways. They're like two complementary accounts that have sort of been stitched together, and that's why we get some repetition about what's going on as God created the world. So we're going to turn to Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. So Genesis, first book of the Bible, should be able to after the contents. Genesis 1. Verse 27 and 28. And what we have here is a Hebrew poem. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Uh, and what we have is an old poem that's been translated into English for us, obviously. And what it says is, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. But that first uh, verse, 27, it's a little poem. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female he created. Now, I suspect, depending on the version you're reading, some of those thems might be he's and some of those man's might be human. And uh, that just goes to show that these verses, it doesn't always help us the way it's interpreted. So I just want to look at these verses just for a little while without hopefully getting too geeky. Uh, so see if you can follow along with me. But what is going on here is God has created the world. He's created uh, animals, the sea, the sky. And then right at the end of that creative process, it says he creates humanity. And humanity is presented as the pinnacle of creation, the crown of God's ordering of heaven and earth. And we see here in these verses that intrinsic to humankind is to bear God's image, to reflect something of God's image, to point people towards God. God created humankind in his image. And then it says, and God created humanity in his image. Now, in some versions, it says Adam. And the danger is because of the way we've kind of grown up and translated, we think Adam, he was a man. Okay, uh, or, or in some versions it says man, not Adam. But actually the word here that should be used, the real root of the word is about humanity. This isn't about God creating a male. What's going on here is it's a God created humankind in his image. In the image of God. And that's why this version says he created them. Your version might say him. But it's them. He created humankind. Male and female, he created them. In other words, two genders, different but alike, who together are to be one humanity. Who together are to reflect what it means to be in the image of God. And so in the structure of this little poem, the phrase image of God very intentionally corresponds to male and female. It corresponds to humanity together reflecting the image of God. It needs both. And so right at the beginning in the created order, here we first encounter the theme of a unified family for everyone. And this theme will begin to thread its way all the way through Scripture to that passage in Revelation, a family of humanity that images God, who are different from one another, 
but also one at the same time. We're just going to unpack that a little bit further as we move into chapter 2, which unpacks this idea a little bit further. So if you look at 2 verse 18. Now up to this point, God has been busy creating a way, and each time he creates something, he stands back and he says something over it. Does anyone remember what he says over it? He stands back, he creates it, and he says, it is good. And that kind of refrain happens several times. So when we get to chapter 2, verse 18, what do you notice? It is not good. It's the first time we get that phrase, it is not God. We've been so used, the reader's been so used to this idea of it is good, that this phrase, it is not good, should, should kind of stand out and make us think, what's going on there? What is it that's not good? It's not good, depending on your version, that man, but actually humanity, it's not good that the human should be alone. It's not good that the human should be alone. And then we get this kind of little bit where he's kind of, all the animals are coming to him in twos. Maybe a link to Noah's Ark later, but that's for a different sermon. Uh, they're coming to him in twos, and, um, and Adam's naming them, and that's a nice bit of information, but I wonder if it's in there just to point us to the fact again that like Adam or humanity seeing kind of all these kind of pairs and suddenly it's like, oh, I, I need more than just me to be complete. I don't know. Maybe that's what the author's doing. Maybe not. I don't know. Just a thought. It's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that human should be alone. And God's solution to this, we read, is to make him a helper as his partner. He brings Eve along to help Adam out. Now, the English translation, again here, is not great because it can conjure up, this word helper can conjure up and has been used down the centuries to justify the idea that the woman is sort of somehow a little bit inferior to man. Equal, but, but not in everything. Or equal, but maybe not really. It can make it sound like Eve was there to make Adam's dinner and darn his socks. He's naked at this point, so not socks, but... You know, later on. But the word here for helper is it's not a great translation. Again, the Hebrew word is this word azer. Okay, this word azer, E-Z-E-R. And a quick study of that word, that Hebrew word, where it's used elsewhere in the Bible, shows us that this word has far more to do with delivering, with rescuing, with saving than it does being some sort of meek assistant. It's actually a word that's used virtually every other time it's used in Scripture to describe God himself. So if you turn to Psalm 121, verses 1 to 2, this is just one example. I'm just going to turn to it now. Psalm 121. right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 121, 1 to 2, quite a well-known psalm. You might have heard it. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That word help has got the same root as that word azer. 
It's talking about God. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will the one who'll darn my socks come? Where will the one who'll just kind of be slightly inferior to me come? Of course, that's not what it means. The one who'll rescue me. The one who, when I cry out, will come and save me. So it conveys the idea of someone who comes running when people cry out for help. And Asa drops everything for those in need. So the idea in this passage in Genesis then is very much that when God says the human needs a helper, what is going on is the human needs a counterpart, someone that mirrors them and in so doing completes them. Maybe even that Asa will rescue them from themselves. And so these two words, the man or the human and the Asa are different, but they reflect and match each other. And together, only together, do they fully bear the image of God. And so here again, at the very beginning, we first encounter God's design that humanity are to be a unified family of different people with diversity who will together bear God's image. A family of humans who image God, who are different from one another, but also one at the same time. And if we read on to verse 21, so we're still in chapter 2 of Genesis, if we read on to verse 21, we see that God's solution, the way God creates this uh, Asa, is to put Adam, or, or the human, into a deep sleep. And then it says he takes a rib from the man and makes this into a woman. Again, not a great translation because the word used for rib is more commonly a word that's actually used in architecture to describe the whole side of a building. So what this passage is saying here is Adam's put to sleep. And it's not just a little game of operation where God gets out his forceps and lifts out the rib without making the nose go red. What Adam is literally, if you like, split in half. Completely split in half. And so one become two different but connected and equal parts. One becomes two. Human or humanity becomes man and woman. And in verse 24 at the end, the author gives us his reflection on what, what he's just been talking about. And it's like in this verse, what he's saying is, I want you to notice this isn't just a cute analogy or a cute story about the origin of the human race. But what I want you to notice is here is a fundamental truth about God's design and plan for us and how we bear the image of our creator. For this reason, he says, a man will leave his mother and father and will cling to a woman and they will become one flesh. Humanity's one, then it becomes two, but it's always supposed to unite back as one. And yes, marriage and nuclear family are two God-inspired examples of this that the author uses here. But he's saying it's not just that. The passage isn't just about that. It's about a deeper truth of who and how God created us to be. That we were created to be unique. But in that uniqueness and diversity, we're created to come together as one. 
Marriage is an example, a picture of that. A nuclear family, genetics is an example of that. But it's so much bigger. If to be human is just about what I experience, then I'm limited. But if I'm somehow connected to one who mirrors me in such a way that I understand what it means for you to be human and how you understand God, then I begin to have a fuller sense of what it means to be human and who God is. And whilst in that I don't lose my own identity, I'm enriched more fully. I become more human because I can bear more the image of God with you than without you. Any one of us, any one human cannot become what God has called us to be together. And so the arc of the biblical narrative right through to Revelation works off this premise and claim that healthy human identity is formed only when it's connected not just to God's, but connected and enriched by each other. Humans in unity, recognizing that we are one in Jesus, that we become, sat here, a family for everyone that bears the image of God. Often we think of family as being bound together by genetics or or, or legal documents. But as you go through the Bible, some of the most beautiful stories and relationships in the Bible are like the story of Ruth, which we looked at this morning, where God draws unlikely, broken people together in unexpected ways. Jesus later says to his disciples that if anyone knows him, they're connected not just to him, but to one another. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. By this, by being a family for everyone, by being a family of love, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples. Church should be a family for everyone that points to Jesus so that others will be welcomed in and join in the family too. You see, the blessing of family, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. What does he say to Abraham? I'm going to make you a great family. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. Not to keep it all to yourself. I'm going to bring you into a family so that others will be drawn into the family as well. I hope you followed that. I just want to ground that a little bit about in my own life how I kind of, uh, one of the ways, one of the many ways I have to keep learning this, I came to that kind of realization. So uh, going back just a couple of years, uh, when I was at university, uh, all right. (laughs) Now my first uh, 12 to 8, I was in uh, York, I was studying psychology, Uh, my first, uh, that's irrelevant, um, but that's where I was, Uh, my first 12 to 18 months at uni, you know how uh, is you tend to, or I did, follow the crowd a little bit of where to go to church. And so I ended up, uh, for my first 12 months or so, going in the morning to one church and in the evening going to another church and feeling perfectly comfortable doing so. After all, uh, it meant I thought what I thought were all my needs. Uh, at Church A in the morning, the teaching was great, uh, and besides, they did a student lunch every week, which was a bonus. The worship, to be honest, it was a little bit old-fashioned, Uh, That meant 70s when I was at university. Uh, At Church B, though, where I went in the evening, uh, the the, the, uh, morning service wasn't quite my cup of tea. But in the evening, there was a really good student work. 
The worship was great, and there was a great group to go to the pub with afterwards, and I fancied a girl who went, who later turned out to be my wife. <laughs> so in what I now recognize was both slightly na- naive, uh, self-focused, and at some point just blowing smoke at my own backside kind of way, uh, I and my mates told ourselves that we'd go to church A in the morning to be fed both by the words and by lasagna. It was always lasagna for some reason. And we go to church B in the evening to be fed both by the spirit in the worship and by fellowship, by which really all I meant was we're going to the pub afterwards. And that was kind of fine, but the problem with that approach, I came to realize, or looking back now, was that was all based on a meology rather than on a theology. It was focused primarily on my shallow selection of what I needed from others rather than on seeking a deeper connection with others and finding that as that developed, both my needs, some I didn't even know I had, and their needs were somehow served and met more profoundly. And it was fine. Both places felt lovely. But looking back now, I'm not sure it really, that year, had too much of a transformative effect on me. I felt welcome at both churches, but I'm not sure like either I'd really made home. In the same way, there's a difference between when I went to my Auntie Shirley's and when I went home. There were some things when I went to my Auntie Shirley's uh, who was lovely and welcoming and I was very comfortable, but there were some things I wouldn't do in her house that I'd probably do in my own. I wasn't totally at home. And so my second 18 months at uni, uh, I made a decision to commit to one of the churches. It could have been either, it didn't really matter, but it wasn't even commit to the church, it was to commit to go deeper into a church, into connection, and, and that practically just meant I couldn't juggle both. And so I decided to forego the lasagna, which I did grieve for a while, and the church that I committed to, I joined a small group, I joined a small group of uh, different ages, not just a student one, and I got involved in the youth team there, and I went along to the morning service rather than just the evening service, which is where I felt I got fed the most. And I'll be completely honest, it was awkward at times. It was difficult at times in the small group as Marion snored in the armchair every week, as Phil made slightly inappropriate dad jokes, and as Helen struggled with small talk. If I'd have had to explain what subject I was studying at university another time, I was going to go mad. But there were times as well, usually when they brought out the puppets, that I really didn't want to be in the morning service either. There were times on a Friday evening where I'd rather be with my mates in the college bar than playing table tennis for half an hour with a young person who couldn't even get the ball on the table. (laughs) But as I committed to family, with all its quirks, with all its characters, actually I found my faith deepening and strengthening. I found my confidence growing. I found my identity clarifying. I found my calling being called out of me. And I found my encounter with the Father, with Jesus, and with the Spirit open up in new and surprising ways. And looking back now, I'm so glad I made that decision. I'd been seeking deeper connection to God wholeheartedly, 
but without seeing that this is somehow intrinsically and mysteriously linked with deeper connection to his body, the church. I loved um, talking to Claire, I'm going to pick on you, Claire, last, last week. I was just chatting to her, having come back off sabbatical, and she was saying, I'm going this evening, I love the evening service, it really, really feeds me. But I also love the 10.15, because it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but actually I get to kind of uh, see the young people, I get to chat to other people who wouldn't be here. And I just loved that kind of of approach, that idea of being family. And so there's ways that I'd encourage you to be part of the family to intentionally invest in what it means to be here and part of a family as everyone, not just come on and sit and be pew fodder, not that's what I'm saying, what you, do, what you are doing. But it's easy, isn't it, just to come and sit and go feed me rather than intentionally invest. So if Sunday 6.15 is your service, what about maybe popping along to another service with the intention to serve or the intention to come alongside someone else, younger or older, than yourself. Do you know, um, there's some research that's been done that significantly says that those who attend church have significantly better health prospects and are happier than those who don't. And at first they thought this was just about, it's a social group that's supportive and lovely, but actually they did further research and showed that there are indeed protective factors unique and exclusive to belonging to a church family that increase those benefits and then they found that those benefits increase again for those who are involved in the church beyond just going to one service on a Sunday or to finish I'm just going to put it another way I saw this uh, illustration in the week and it it just spoke into I think everything I was saying Um, so I'm going to ask Jacob uh, just to come up and he's just going to tootle away (laughs) on the guitar Now, hopefully, I'm sure you all know what they are. Come on, shout it out. The guitar strings. The guitar strings. And the interesting... Feel free to start any time, mate, yeah. The, the interesting thing about these strings is they didn't come in the packet connected to what they were made for. But they were designed, they were made in order to be connected. And the interesting thing about these strings is that they have to be connected to be something bigger than themselves, to operate in the things that they were created for. And many of us think if I connect myself to something, it limits me. But actually what it does is it liberates you, it frees you for the purpose you were made for. Now this part of the guitar is called a headstock. Ahead. This part of the guitar is called a body. And the thing is, if we're only connected to this, I'm connected, but I'm not operational. And therefore, I'm not fulfilling my purpose. But when it's connected to the head and to the body, what we actually begin to get, what we actually be able to see happening is the things, the strings are operating in the way that they were designed for. And do you know what we experience first? Tension. 
the reason sound is coming from those strings is because they're being held in tension. Many of us don't want the attachment or the deep connection because we don't want tension. But can I suggest that where we feel the tension, that's where you'll discover God's intention for you. Now on the guitar, there's six strings all working together, all different thicknesses, all made of different materials, all at different tensions. But what if each one of us was contented to be the person we are and contented to be in the place that God wants to connect us? Because the truth is, if we're willing to put our life in tension, we begin to realize that we have a small but vital part to play in a melody which is more beautiful and more intricate than anything you can create yourself. So as we start this series, I'd really encourage you not just to think about connecting to Christ. I'd really encourage you to do that. But not just that, but seriously consider what it means and how you're connecting to his body as well. The whole church is, of course, connected through the world. We're one big extended family, and we celebrate that. But how can you be connected to a local church, whether this one or if this isn't where God's calling you, another one, and go with our complete blessing and cheering you on. But please, please don't just be pew fodder. Please don't have a theology-based on a meology. Please, please discover how when you commit to taking your place and being all in to this broken but beautiful family, you'll discover more of his love, more of his blessing, and more of what it means to together bear his image. We're going to stand and by way of response, Jacob's going to continue to lead us.